My hope is that through this week, you will uh, remember the folks that are dealing with these issues and, uh, and that you'll, you'll pray. And my hope is that you'll pray not, to be, not because uh, you can't do anything else. We believe that praying is the first thing you can do. We believe that praying is the most powerful thing you can do. We believe that anything else that you do flows from your praying about these things. Whether you fix a meal for somebody or shoot a text or offer forgiveness or grace to somebody or whatever it is that you do that brings the kingdom here, we believe it flows from praying. You know what Jesus said when he was walking in the face of the earth? He said, uh, I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. That's the only way I know what to do is I see God doing it, and so that's what I do. So prayer kind of aligns our heart with God's and allows us to then step into what we need to step into. And so when we pray this prayer and we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, our hope is that that would be the very thing that causes us to move and to act and to send a text to say, I'm praying for you, or will you forgive me? Whatever it is that, that builds the kingdom. Look, you and I, we're, we're characterizing our lives now by the, the toxic and caustic nature of our culture. We can't get away from it. It's all around us. And we're in this series called Pact. This is why the suitcases are over here. And it's why we're in Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 for a few weeks so that we can sort of find our way in this culture moment that is so, so damaging and, and toxic, as we said. But if there's a phrase that characterizes it well, probably better than anything else, it would be this phrase. supposed to be there. I don't know. Oh, look at that. There we go. Maybe. There it is. Us and them. Say it with me. Us and them. And so we see this all the time. We see it around us. Here's what I'd like for you to do to help us sort of get into this and, and be thinking about it together. I, I'd like for you to answer this question thoughtfully. And wherever, however far we get over the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, Josh is probably thinking 45 minutes because he has to put my sermon up on the web uh, and he knows exactly how long I preach. So um, you could either make a note on your phone or you could just ponder this and, and think about it reflectively, but it will really help you if you come up with a few thoughtful answers, okay? I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I haven't done. And when I did this, it was painful, so I know it's going to be painful for you if you engage in it. I mean, you could check out. That's fine. Uh, but it's helpful if you engage in it. This is what was helpful for me. When you think about us and them in our culture, all around us, who's your them? Who is it? Now, it's helpful here if you name it, specifically name it. And so it'd be great if you could come up with maybe uh, two or three different groups that would make up the them. We all know who us is, right? Who's us? Well, it's us, isn't it? It's, we're all us. We're good. We think the same. We love the same. We disagree the same. We have the same values. This is what we think until we have a conversation with somebody. But at least if we're in this place, we have some things that we can say, of course we're together. Of course we're us. Of course you think like I think because you're smart and I'm smart and we're smart together. But there's got to be a them. So who's the them for you? Who is it? So as you're pondering the them, you're going to maybe put them in a, a little label category, a little box, and you have some respectful names for the thems, right? Names that you would use if you were in a conversation with somebody and you weren't sure how they felt about the same thems. But you also have some other names for thems, don't you? 
And they're the names that, I don't know, I mean, you might throw it on social media, you might not. You might use it in close company, but with somebody you're not sure, maybe they're a them, you would never use that sort of, what we would call it pejorative or discriminatory or you know, negative or hurtful term. But it's helpful for you if you at least are honest about it emotionally and intellectually. So who's your them? Who's your them? You got a few groups? Let me ask you. Who's got at least one group? You said, I know at least one group of them. Put your hands up. Okay? How many of you got at least two groups? Two groups of thems. Okay? Overachievers. How many of you got three groups? Three groups. Really judgy folks. Okay, really. That's good. It helps if we laugh because then we can sort of enter into it and think thoughtfully about it. Who is your who is your them? And when you begin to ponder who your them is, and then you start to think about why they are a them, why you put them in another category, why you've decided to lump these sorts of people together. It could be based on how they see the world. It could be based on their friends. It could be based on the way they dress or how many tattoos they have or who they vote for. It could be based on their socioeconomic categories. It could be based on the color of their skin. It could be based on you name it, you name it. There's all kinds of reasons you might have a pile or a group or a subset, whatever is thoughtful, respectful, but truthful of thems. Once you begin to be honest about who they are and what you might call them if you're super comfortable around people that you know that think like you think, then then you can start really thinking about this passage of scripture. So who is it? How many of you have just sort of just kind of dialed into what I'm talking about, decided that the inward reflection is just a little painful to think about right now? There's a local campaign sign here in Castle Rock. It's a big, big campaign sign. You know, one of the, I mean, it's not like a little yard sign. It's a big one. And it got defaced this week. Pretty, in a pretty vulgar way. Somebody posted it on social media on one of those, you know, Castle Rock community talk sites on Facebook. And, well, I spent about at least 30 minutes just reading the comments about this. And the us and them that came through, and of course, this is just politically. I bet your us and them has a lot of varieties to it. But right now, political is the hot button. Or maybe race relations or equality or justice, you name it. But the comments, of course, were a combination of, you know, sadistically entertaining and then incredibly depressing to read. Us and them. Now, as we go through this this passage of Scripture, what we said last week, if you missed it, is this passage in Ephesians, just these verses, starting with verse 11, going all the way to verse 22, is just a short passage. Paul packs in some incredible theology about all of this issue, about why we feel divided, about why it's so toxic. And then he also talks about the solution or how to even find a way forward. And if you're talking about your suitcase, your spiritual suitcase, and the things that are critical, what we've called your theological toothbrush, if you will, that absolutely critical to carry with you and to carry along with you and to be sure that when you open it up and you have a conversation with a coworker or a friend or a family member, you've got this thing with you. This passage is probably the most important and really the key passage in all of Ephesians. Some theologians would argue the entire New Testament 
to help you find your way when it comes to peace. Relationships that will go beyond the superficial and still have depth and meaning even with people that you disagree with. Even with people that have a completely different set of convictions. And in this passage, this is what's powerful about it. Paul doesn't tell you what to think. He tells you how to think. He gives you a lens. And what's good about that and what makes it masterful, Holy Spirit and Paul working together, of course, if he tells you what to think, then it's very hard to take it and apply it to what's going on today. Because, you know, my goodness, the, the times are so different. The culture is so different. But if he tells you how to think, then it applies to every circumstance you find yourself in. Whenever there's tension, whenever there's difficulty, whenever there's an us and them, whenever any of that is the case. But for that to really work, for this to have any effect on us at all, we have to bring ourselves to the table, don't we? We have to bring our heart and our our perspectives and our biases and our shortcomings and our honesty intellectually and emotionally We have to bring it to the table and we have to be honest about it and say, well, this is what's really going on. I mean, come on. When you go to the doctor, when you go to the doctor and he says to you, so what's happening? How are you feeling? If you say, you know, I'm fine, I'm good. What's he got to work with, right? What can he do with that? But if you're there with your spouse, then they say, tell him, tell him. Tell him what's happening. I don't want to tell him. He's the doctor. Who else are you going to tell? How can you get help if you don't tell? If you won't be honest about what's happening in here, then how can Jesus have anything to do with it? If you don't be clear, at least with yourself, about who your thems are, look. if if you can't start here, then how can you even begin? And so we have to bring ourselves to the table. And that's hard. It's really hard. It's not fun. And it means that, you know, maybe without any anesthetic, we're going to get operated on, you know. I mean, the word of God is sharp as a two-edged, what? Well, you say sword. I'll say scalpel, okay? It's a scalpel. And it cuts. And it can be painful. But it's the difference between getting mugged behind a store or going into a hospital and laying on a table and saying, you know, fix me up. Jesus is the good physician, right? And so it's what he does. And so, be honest, it's only for your benefit. Who's your us and them? So you got your thems in mind, you got your names in mind for them, you know, the, the whatever. And you've also thought of maybe the names that you call them among your closest friends that are hilarious, right? And so now that you have your us and them, here's what happens when there is an us and them. When there's us and them, we begin to critique and see them in a very different light than we see ourselves. We believe that there is a fundamental difference between us and what? And them. We believe that. That's why there is a dichotomy. That's why there's a separation. This is why we see two different groups. There's a a fundamental difference, and we know what that difference is. That's how we have divided out these two groups of people. We've decided where we fit, 
and we've decided where they fit, haven't we? If we were iffy on it, it would be all us, wouldn't it? If we weren't sure, if there were a bunch of gray areas or it was just hard to nail down, it would be all us. But it's not all us. We have us in what? In them. And the reason why we think that is because, well, first of all, we believe that we are what? We're right. We believe that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you have to live, right? I mean, you have to think about things. You have to vote. You have to, I mean, if you got your ballots in the mail here in Colorado, you got them. How many of you have voted already? Let me see your hands. Okay, if you have voted already, you get the voter guide and you want to study it and you Google and you pay attention. You need to figure out whether you need to wear a mask or shouldn't wear a mask or masks are bad or, you know, all of these things that you're trying to sort out about your life. And if you didn't have a way to learn or gather information or if you didn't have the internet, if you didn't have good friends who were wise and thoughtful, then you couldn't learn. But you can learn because God has given you this ability to learn things. And when you learn something that you didn't know before, you add it to your little pile of information and then you make a decision about how to move forward. And the reason you do that is because you believe that based on what you know so far, that you are, that you're right. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be right. In fact, most of us believe that, look, I have some opinions about a few things, And if you saw it the way I saw it, if you knew what I knew, then you would think what I think, right? And we believe that. We think that when we're in our home by ourselves in our little bubble until we start to have a conversation with somebody who thinks differently than we think. And then we begin informing them. Have you ever been in the process of informing somebody? Yeah, me too. And I say, well, yeah, I know, I know that's what you think, but you know, let me tell you what I've learned. Let me tell you what I've seen. Let me tell you how I see it. And I really do believe that if you knew what I knew, if you saw it the way I saw it, you would think what I think because I am right. I am. There's another way to see this. There's another way to, to view this. And it's instead of thinking that I'm right for us to think outside of the box a bit and that, that perspective is this. Well, there are lots of opinions on the subject, I'm sure, but this just happens to be the way I see it. How often have you heard that over the last year? How often have you felt that way over the last year? Not just heard it from other people, but yourself. It's pretty rare. And one of the reasons it's rare is because, well, once we learn something new, we believe that we're right. And this is especially hard, this idea to avoid that we believe that we're right. It's especially hard to to overcome that when it comes to our most deeply held beliefs, like our beliefs about God, politics, policy, equality, religion, social systems, how things ought to work, taxes, your money, my money, their money. It's very difficult to overcome because we believe that we are right. If you go down that road believing that you're right, which is the most natural thing in the world for us to do, there's another stop that's not too far down the road, and it's this. Once we believe that we're right, we're not there yet, but we're close. We begin to deduce that we are what? Well, of course being right is better. What's the opposite of being right? Right. Every time you were wrong, you've wanted to be right, haven't you? 
And so, of course, if you are right, you're better than somebody who's wrong. And we believe that we can bring somebody along until we've already explained to them everything that we know and how we see everything, but they've decided that they still don't want to agree with us. And so now they're wrong, and we find out that they're as informed as we are, but they're also as stubborn as we are. Better is a short drive from right. It is. And when you're there, you know you're there. You're thems. The most honest names that you give to them, they reveal that short drive, don't they? That not only do you think you're right, but you believe you're better. Because your, your criticisms of the thems imply stupidity, selfishness. What else do they imply? What? Ignorance. It's good. It's good, Dave. Dave's playing along. This is exactly right. This is what happens. Us and them. Now, when you go down this road, then you begin latching on to what I'll call inadvertent truth. You know what inadvertent means, right? Sort of by accident, sort of an oops. Didn't mean to get there, but there you are. A lot of you have found inadvertent sin before. Maybe you found inadvertent donuts in your kitchen and you thought, oops, there they are. This is inadvertent truth. And it's truth that you wouldn't say out loud. You don't really even mean it. You wouldn't even call it a conviction, but you found it and you've latched onto it. And the reason you've latched onto it, the reason you found it is because you believe that you're right and it's a short drive, it's a short drive. You begin to deduce or suspect, uh, be, be suspicious that you're better. And when this, this happens, then you believe this truth about love, identity, and worth. That love is earned, that identity is based on what you believe, and that worth is based on how smart or self-aware or enlightened or not ignorant that you are. You can come to no other conclusion. Now, to say it out loud makes it sound ridiculous, but it's inadvertent, and you found it, and you clap onto it, and it becomes a part of who you are. It begins to reveal what you believe about those things. And it's a big deal, and it's important. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Ephesians chapter 2? What I just described to you is exactly what Paul describes in these verses, starting with verse 11 and verse 22. Some of you read it this week. Some of you read it in a bunch of different translations. Some of you have leaned into it. Here's what Paul says. Here's what he says. Don't forget that who? Who's he talking about? You. He's talking about you. I mean, I think you. I did this, I've, I've talked about this before, even in this place, and, and found out that there were a couple Jewish people present, so it may not be all you. Any, any, uh, any Gentiles in the room? Let me see your hands. A few Gentiles. You know what a Gentile is, right? A Gentile is anybody that's not a Jewish person. That's all. It means anybody that doesn't have Jewish heritage. Anybody that doesn't come spring from the Jewish line of the tree that Paul would describe as being Israel. And Paul is a Jewish man. He is an accomplished Jewish man. He is a Jewish man among Jewish men. And Paul is describing the tension between us and them. And he says, don't forget 
that you Gentiles used to be what? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? How do you know it's a bad thing? He didn't even say it was bad. How do you know being an outsider is a bad thing? You instinctively know this, right? Because there are social circles and there are people on the inside and there are people on the outside. The people on the outside have less money than the people on the inside, don't they? Almost always. The people on the outside have less power, less influence, less position, less status. There's always less, but on the inside, there's more. And so do we want to be inside or do we want to be outside? What do we want to be? Oh, we want to be welcomed on the inside with open arms. This is how every social hierarchy works. It doesn't matter if it's in Nigeria or Senegal or England or the U.S. Outsiders and insiders. And Paul says, don't forget that you Gentiles, anyone who isn't Jewish, used to be outsiders. Now, Paul has been setting this entire thing up from the very beginning of Ephesians. And he uses language like us and you and we and them, some singular, some plural. And he's describing two groups of people. The two groups of people he's describing are Jewish men and women and everybody else. It's a big deal. And when you have an us and them mentality, you do the exact same thing that has occurred for millennia that happened with the Jews of the Old Testament, New Testament, even today, and the Gentiles forever. And so this idea of us and them, it started then. Us and them together. Jews believed, same as everyone believes, that they were right. And then they believed that they were better. This, this path of right and better, they followed it. And this is why Paul can say, you Gentiles have been on the outside. It's the story of the New Testament. How the Gentiles came into the church. How God took one new humanity and made it up of people that were passionately against each other. Us and them. And when Paul's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, he stumbles on the biggest problem with this thinking. And it's this. And this is probably the biggest takeaway for the day. You can't love someone from a position of better. You can't. You can't do it. In fact, say it with me, just so you remember it. Ready? Say the whole statement. You can't love someone from a position of better. You can't do it at all. You can help them. Absolutely. You can help them all day long. You can have pity on them. You know what pity sounds like, right? There, but for the grace of God, go I. You can have compassion on them. You can have incredible compassion and offer, but you cannot love them from a position of better. In fact, it's the opposite of love if you try to do it from a position of better. And you've done this before. You offer a hand down. Help somebody from your lofty position, from your position of being right or being generous or being Christian or whatever else that you believe makes you better. And Jesus said, they will know you are my followers by the way that you, what? 
love one another. But you cannot do that from a position of better. You can try, but it isn't love. It's something else. Pity, self-justification, you name it. But it isn't love. I know so you're thinking, well, Jesus loved us. I mean, he was better. That's exactly right. In fact, he was so much better than us. And didn't he know it? Of course he knows all things. So how did he love us? If you can't love from a position of better, how did Jesus do it? Well, here's how Paul says he did it. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Say it with me. Rather, he made himself nothing. This is how he loved. Not from a position of better by taking the very nature of a servant. Now you remember what we talked about last week and the question that we even asked at the park, the question that's so critical and really defining for followers of Jesus right now during this season, whether it's the pandemic and COVID or the political uprising or all kinds of things that are happening with racial inequality. The question was this, what determines your capacity to love? When you get bumped, when you get, when you get kind of nudged, when you get kind of crossways with somebody, what spills out of you? Our hope is that it's love and that that love is, is fully and complete, agape love, that you have good intentions, good heart, good practical giving of somebody to somebody, this nature of love that's described all throughout the New Testament. It means that I forgive easily. It means I don't hold a grudge. It means that I'm able to see God's image in you. What determines your capacity to love? We want love to spill out. The biggest barrier to this capacity is the idea that you are right. And then maybe even better. It's the biggest hurdle to loving well because you cannot love. You cannot love from a position of better. You cannot do it. The fundamental truth that you and I are the same, that's where love flows from. And it establishes my worth, my identity, and the very nature of love. So why did the Jewish people feel so superior? How did they get there? How did they get to a place where they were able to call the Gentiles outsiders and keep them from God's grace? How did this occur? Could it happen again? Could it happen with us? Oh, the wise in the room, no, it already has happened with us. Historically, time and time again, a thousand times over. So how did they get there? Paul describes it, I'm telling you, just in these verses, 11 to 22, chapter two. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called, say it with me. It's a little awkward, isn't it? I know, yeah, yeah, say it with me. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens, which is redundant, isn't it? That you would be a heathen means that you would be uncircumcised if you were Jewish. You would be an uncircumcised heathen. This is how... It's in quotes because Paul is saying, this is how we view anyone who's not Jewish. Now, we could spend actually a whole sermon series on the issue of circumcision. How big do you think the church would grow if we did that, right? And so you can study and you can dig into it, but I want to give you just a picture of what's going on here and why this would even be a thing 
circumcision became to be the, the marker of what it meant to be chosen by God. You know the story of Abraham. Abraham, he's there. He, this is before there were even Jewish or Hebrew people. God called Abraham, early part of Genesis. And he says, I'm gonna make you into a great, what? Nation. And I'm gonna bless you. And everyone that you bless, I will bless. That's what God says to Abraham. It's a very short trip from God chose me to God chose me, right? It's a short walk. And that short walk means, ah, the emphasis is all on the wrong place. God chose me. Well, that means I must be right. And if I'm right, then I might even be better. And in the process, this is not early on, but it occurs over time. God said to Abraham and Sarah, I will bless you with children and make you in a great nation. They said, well, Sarah's barren. We can't have kids. We can't have kids. And God says, I'm bigger than that. And God gave him a covenant. It involved several things. One of those things was circumcision. Circumcision was the visceral, painful reminder to Abraham and Sarah that we can try it in our own way and fail or we can trust God and he will give us everything that we need. That's what circumcision means. They would be forever reminded that what they couldn't do on their own, God could do. Do you understand the, the selflessness and surrender that is embodied in the nature of that covenant? What we could try to do on our own, they even tried to do it through another, another mom, right? If you know the story. Didn't work. In fact, created a, a global conflict that's still happening today. Or you could trust God and let him do it. Well, who does it? God does. What's my part? Surrender, waiting, trusting. That's your part. Surrender, waiting, and trusting. Does that take ability? No, it just takes humility. That's all it takes. Believing that God will work even when you can't. God is saying, listen close. I can do what you cannot do. I can handle what you cannot handle. That's what circumcision means. Now, over hundreds of years, the Jewish people took it to mean we are God's favorite. We are best. We are better. We are right. God chose what? Us. And so now there is us and, and them which is why, which is why Paul says, you were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. What was your title for your them? What, what group was it? You don't have to tell me. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. What, what name did you have? Was it as, uh, as hurtful as uncircumcised heathen? I bet some of them were. Come on, I've heard you chatting. I've used... I've used labels for my thems that I am ashamed of. Donna could tell you. My friends could tell you. I have some very creative labels for the thems, for my thems. That as I'm thinking and preparing and wondering, trying to listen to God's voice this week, he began to poke and say, you're really going to preach about that? Maybe you should repent first uncircumcised heathens 
And what does he say? He goes on to say this. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were what? Proud. What do you hear? I am right and I am and I'm better. Listen to what they were proud of. It's pretty funny, okay? Listen to what they were proud of. They were proud of their what? That's ridiculous, isn't it? Utterly ridiculous. So both the Gentiles and the Jewish people had names for each other. They both believed that they were right and they both believed that they were better. That's true of every dichotomy, every division in our culture today. The Jews called the Gentiles uncircumcised heathens and they had other names for them as well. The Gentiles called the Jewish men the mutilators. That's awful. That's just awful, isn't it? Yeah. And some of you are now going to have a conversation with your kids about what circumcision is, and you can thank me for that later, okay? Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. Can you imagine that? Being proud of a surgical procedure? Can you imagine that you would allow pride to sneak in such a small door like that? That you believe that you're right and better in such a way just because something happened that could happen to literally anybody that wants it? Oh, so where does pride sneak in for us? That we found a study about such and such that makes us right or have the corner on the market when it comes to what's happening in our culture right now? That we know how to be patient or kind when other people only had to return rudeness for anger? Where does pride sneak in? In other words, the question that, that we ought to ask and that we'll end with today is this. What determines your capacity to love? If you remember anything today, remember this. You cannot love from a position of better. You cannot do it. You cannot love while pride holds a center place in your heart. You cannot do it. I, just like you, believe I'm right about so many things. But then that short trip from right to better must be completely cut off at the pass. And we have to return to humility. In fact, the best answer to this question, what determines your capacity to love? It's that, humility. It is when we constantly, relentlessly dismantle the elements of pride that get built up without our even knowing it. It's when we check our behavior, our thoughts, our words, and our attitudes only against the lens of love. Anything else is leading us down a path that we don't want to go down. It starts with knowing that the seeds of pride are sown every day and we have to yank them up by the root. There's a gentleman in our church that put up a political post not long ago and somebody commented on it pretty, pretty forcefully, pretty aggressively. And I, I read that and I, I read the comment and I wondered, I mean, I know this gentleman, I know him pretty well. I wondered, 
what's, what's going to happen next? Have you felt that way in our culture about a thousand times a day? What's going to happen next? And I wonder the same thing. And with humility, this aggressiveness, he responded with this comment. He said, no worries, Janet, no worries. We're friends before politics. And with one simple comment, he took all the power right out of it and put love in its place. Isn't that who you want to be? Humility has to be present. Without it, well, our capacity of love is, is almost gone. The team's going to lead us in a song as we get ready to leave, a, a chance for us to behold the, the goodness and the glory of God. And so as we sing this song together and they come up to lead us, my hope is that humility will take a front seat in your heart and pride will be put where it belongs, in the back. And as this happens, our hope and prayer is that God will continue to build us into the people of God with a capacity of love that is continually expanding and growing. As humility grows, our capacity of love grows. And this passage, is, he, Paul's just getting started. This is just the foundation to help us know how to move forward. And we'll unpack more next week. So Lord, we ask that as we, as we sing these words, as we seek you right now, as we decide to allow humility to take front and center in our lives, that you would give us the courage to love this way. So help us to come to you beholding the greatness of your mercy and your power. And as we do so, may humility grow in us in a way that, that we've not yet seen before. We ask this in the name of Jesus. We all say, amen.